Hey, happy Easter. Man, I'm so tempted to say good morning because that's what I'm so used to, but uh, it is evening and uh, happy Easter weekend. Uh, I want to say hello to those of you in our parent viewing rooms. Great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. And a big hello to all of you at our online campus. Uh, in fact, if you're watching online, just go ahead and put your favorite emoji in the chat right now. Let us know that you're there. And uh, man, I'm genuinely thrilled that you're here with us today to celebrate Easter uh, because this is a day in history a couple thousand years ago that really changed everything for humanity. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, we celebrate something really incredible, that this day represents a really a defining moment in history. And we celebrate what it means for followers of Jesus. And the foundation of our faith, those who follow Jesus, is not simply the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it's not the things that he said. It's not really the things that he did. It's not the miracles of Jesus. In fact, it's really an event-based faith. It really is all about what Jesus did. It's not, it's not around a uh, set of religious beliefs or a philosophy. The fact is, the foundation of our event is really one specific event in human history. It's the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, unfortunately, the further that we become removed from that original event, what happens is it tends to become a little bit more commercialized and a little bit more sanitized, and we kind of get that kinda, a little bit of white noise uh, towards it. it. It starts to kind of sound like, yep, I've heard that before. I've heard the story. I go to Easter every year. And we kind of get removed from the true meaning of Easter. And even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I mean, I, I got to tell you, since I'm a pastor and we do multiple services usually every year, now I've probably told the Easter story about a hundred times. And you, you think about that, it's like, wow, that, it starts to, even for me, become a little bit of white noise and uh, consequently it becomes easy to tune out. And so here, here's the question, why do we tell the story over and over again? Uh, it's kind of like this. This is the best way I can describe it. Is um, several years ago when my daughter was younger, she she was the oldest, and she brought uh, the first kid to bring home a recorder from third grade. Everybody know what that is? The recorder. You're, some of you are laughing nervously. Some of you are groaning because you know exactly what a recorder is, right? Satan's flute. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, if there's going to be music in hell, it's going to be played on a recorder. I'm telling you that right now. I mean, it's unbelievable. And have you ever been to a like, kid's concert where they, where they whip those things out and you're just like, oh no, oh no. What is going to happen next, right? And they always open with the same song. It's always the same song, right? Hot Cross Buns. Everybody know that little ditty? Yeah. It's like, do, 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 do. Do, 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 thank you, okay. And, and then they're like, okay, for our next number, three blind mice. <laughs> like, wait a minute, that's the same song. It's just amazing. But here's what happens. Every parent knows this. When you have a third grader who brings home that recorder, you very quickly learn how to tune it out. You learn how to let that music fade into the background, Right? Because after a while, you just learn, it, that just becomes white noise. And I wonder sometimes if we don't do the same thing with Easter. I wonder sometimes if the story doesn't just become so repetitive and uh, kind of been there, done that, that we kind of lose the wonder of what's really going on here in this story. And it's absolutely incredible. And I think if we're honest, we kind of experience that with Easter. It's like, okay, Jesus died. And then he was buried, and then he rose again. Yep, okay, we got that. We've heard the story, and we go to church, right? And we, and we do the thing, and we eat the ham, and we hide the eggs, and, you know, egg salad for three weeks. <laughs> and I'm not sure 
I'm not sure what drew you here today. I'm not sure if a friend invited you or a family member invited you or, or, or maybe grandma was like, you are not getting ham unless you come to church with me. And that's fine. I'm, I'm, if that's why you're here, I'm glad you're here. But it doesn't matter why you're here. Man, I'm thrilled that you're here checking this out. I want you to know we started Westbridge Church as a place for the rest of us, as a place where it's okay to not be okay, as a place where you can move at your own pace and really explore faith in Jesus and what does it actually mean for me to be a follower of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, move at your own pace, get to know us a little bit, but I'm just glad that you are here. And so my goal today on Easter weekend is to help us kind of rediscover the wonder of this Easter story and why it actually matters for us and why we tell the story over and over again. And to really understand that, uh, here's what we have to understand. Jesus came to bring good news, not good advice. Jesus came to bring good news, not just good advice. And I think this is what happens sometimes. I think a lot of people think Jesus came to bring good advice, that Jesus came to be a good teacher, that Jesus came to, to sort of teach us how to live, right? And so it's like, hey, be kinder, be nicer, be more loving, try harder. And yet I can tell you, nobody has ever been put to death or crucified for the message of be nicer, be kinder, try harder. No one's ever been put to death over that message. And while Jesus definitely taught and modeled a different way of living uh, that is kind and that is nice and that is loving, his ultimate message was not a message of good advice, His ultimate message was not a message of here's how to live your life in a way that is nicer or kinder or more loving. That wasn't his primary message, although he taught some of those things. It was a message of good news. You see, advice is something that you give to people to try to get them to behave a certain way. But if you're talking about news, news is just the proclamation that something has happened. That's all that that is. And so we get this uh, from Jesus over and over again. In fact, in in Mark chapter 1, we we read this about Jesus. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He says, this is good news. This this is just something that has happened. I'm, I'm giving you the announcement I'm not telling you, here's the things you need to do. I'm telling you, here's something that has happened. And Mark points out that Jesus' core message is not primarily to teach people how to live. His message is not to give good advice. It's to proclaim good news about something in particular. And you see this language a lot with Jesus. In fact, uh, in Luke, he records this for us. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. And over and over and over again, we're told Jesus came to let people in on this good news that this, this kingdom of God has now become available for ordinary people like you and me. This thing that he called the kingdom of God. You can live in this thing called the kingdom of God if you want to. You've been invited. And everybody is invited. And nobody's excluded. Nobody had heard that message before. And here's why that's super helpful. A lot of churches unintentionally have sort of replaced that. A lot of followers of Jesus unintentionally have replaced that message, that message that says, here's the good news of what God has done. And instead, over time, that message sort of subtly morphs and evolves into this message of, hey, these are the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die. That's how we tend to think of it. And they're not usually put into those words, but that's the idea. It's kind of like this. Usually once a summer, our family will go to uh, Valley Fair and we'll ride all the rides, you know, and I'll, I'll try my best to ride most of the rides and I usually get a headache because I'm getting old. And, and uh, 
but we go on the rides with the kids, and I'll never forget this. This, is, this happened to us just a few years ago. My son, who is now uh, actually very close to being taller than me, but at the time, uh, he, he, we were going to ride Thunder Canyon at uh, Valley Fair. Great ride. You know, you get soaked. You're splashing through the canyons. And as we got up there, wouldn't you know it, he goes up and it says, you have to be this tall to ride the ride. And so he, he goes up there, and of course, he's so close. And he does what any kid does in that situation, right? Just <laughs> standing up as tall as he could, right? And then the guy that's operating the ride, he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry, man. You just missed it. I mean, you could not have put a piece of paper between, like, how close he was to that, uh, to that height measurement. And the guy goes, man, I'm sorry. You, you, you know, I, I can't let you ride. And I was just like, oh, come on. Can't you let him ride? Like, come on, please. He's like, I can't do it. I can't let you ride. And it was just, man, it was heartbreaking uh, to look in his eyes and just be like, hey, I'll meet you at the end. I mean, that was rough. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's how a lot of people think about this message of Jesus. Heaven is this amazing ride, and Jesus came to earth to sort of set up the measurement stick and then tell you who's in and who's not, and who's, who's done enough, and who's measured up enough, and who isn't. And so, so the idea is like, man, if I, can just, if I could just do enough, if I could just behave enough, then I could meet the requirement so that I can get on that ride someday. And that's how a lot of people think about this message. But when we do that, it becomes a message of good advice. It becomes, hey, Jesus came to give you good advice so that you could measure up enough, so that you could do enough to measure up enough so that someday you could take that great ride. But that isn't the message of Jesus. In fact, Jesus never said that. What he said is this, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. It's here now. But here's what you have to understand about that. Number two, God's kingdom operates differently than our kingdoms do. Now, you're like, our kingdoms, what does that mean, our, our kingdoms? Well, think about this, and this is still a, little, a little bit fuzzy for a lot of us because we don't tend to use the word kingdom to refer to the parts of the world that we live in necessarily. We don't use that word a lot in our day-to-day. But when you think about it, let's talk about this idea of a kingdom for just a minute. Everybody has a kingdom, the way that Jesus talked about kingdom. Everybody has one. Your kingdom is that little sphere, where, however big, however little that is, in which what you say goes. You are effectively in charge of that kingdom, right? And your kingdom is the range of your effective will. Whatever sphere, whatever that looks like, where what you say happens, your will is done. And everybody learns growing up that they have a kingdom. That's why every two-year-old's favorite word is no, quickly followed with mine. Nobody taught them that, right? They just pick up on it because what has even a two-year-old sort of uh, understood without even being taught? They have understood from an early age that I have a kingdom and it needs to be defended. (laughs) Every two-year-old knows that, right? As a matter of fact, even as kids get older, they start to defend their kingdom. Even kids in the backseat of the car, they have their kingdom. They've got this dividing line and they're like, that's your kingdom, this is my kingdom, don't cross the boundary. And, and what happens? They go to war in the backseat of the car trying to figure out and define their kingdoms. And what they don't realize is this whole vehicle is dad's kingdom. <laughs> and so they're back there fighting over their kingdoms. And so dad sends a representative in the form of his hand to, to calm this war. And they flee to the far ends of their kingdoms, right? And I can tell you as a parent, a little tap on the brakes brings them right into play, okay? I'm just telling you. A little parenting tip. And here's the deal. 
It's unbelievable that we have this. And, and on earth, all of these little kingdoms, it's my house is my kingdom, my family is my kingdom. And, and then these little kingdoms form these other bigger sort of networks called a neighborhood. And that's a kingdom. They, they even sometimes have people who are self-proclaimed kings if you have a neighborhood association. <laughs> and then we have neighborhoods that form cities, and that's a kingdom. And there's administrators of those kingdoms, and then we have cities that form networks that create bigger kingdoms. There's states and there's countries, and these kingdoms, and this, all of these things are kingdoms. And, and all of this whole conglomeration of all of these kingdoms form what we would call the kingdom of earth. And, and, and it's just the reality that, you know, neighborhoods are kingdoms, cities are kingdoms, companies are kingdoms, Google and Facebook, those are kingdoms, kingdoms of, of personal power, they're systems of power. And if you put them all together, the, the scripture, the, the language that the scriptures use is the kingdom of earth. Now, let's just contrast God's kingdom with the kingdom of earth for just a minute. That you have this thing called God's kingdom, and in God's kingdom, that's the domain where that's the sphere where what God wants happens, where God's will is done. Everything is the way that God wants it to be. And so Jesus let his followers know it's not a matter of legalistic rules or trying to just measure up, but living out our new identity as citizens of a new kingdom. This isn't about here's the things you need to do. This is about this is what God has already done. It's not an announcement of good advice. It's good news. In fact, Jesus draws this distinction. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then you have this earthly kingdom. How are we doing on this earthly kingdom? When you look at the kingdoms of earth, how are we doing? Not very well. We have terrorism. We have violence. We have massacres and genocide. We have starvation. We have broken hearts and broken lives and broken families. And we have not done a very good job managing the kingdom of earth. And so Jesus says, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. I'm going to bring up, down, I'm going to bring up there down here. I'm going to invade this messy kingdom of earth with this loving kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to bring it here. And a lot of people think the message of Jesus is this. Hey, if you do enough, if you tip the scales enough in your lifetime, if you behave enough, then guess what's going to happen? Then someday God is going to get you the heck out of Dodge. Like the earth, kingdom of earth isn't going very well. And so someday God's going to come and he's going to get you out of here. Right? Beam me up, Scotty. Just wanted to see where my Trekkies were at. All right. Yeah, I see you. And here's the deal. Instead, here's what Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, and may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus never tells us to pray, God, please, please get us out of here. He teaches us to pray, God, please let your kingdom invade this one. And let my life be a reflection of my citizenship in that kingdom. Jesus said, here's my plan. I am going to invade this messed up kingdom of darkness with the eternally loving kingdom of God. In other words, up there has come down. And it all starts with Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, God in skin and bone. Up there has come down here. And God's presence is going to be with us now. God's presence is going to be, it's going to be in our way of living, in the way that we treat each other. It's made available to ordinary people like you and me. And it is not a new requirement to get in. It's simply a new citizenship to live out. 
And it's not advice, it's good news. And he began to talk about what this kingdom of God would look like. And when you start to talk about what the kingdom of God looks like, it really put him on a collision course with the kingdoms of this world. Because the religious and political and military and economic kingdoms of this world saw Jesus as a threat to the things that they were building. And they recognized this kingdom of God was in position to set free the captives that their sort of respective kingdoms held prisoner. And they were threatened. We discover, actually, in John chapter 11, it's not in your outline, but at a certain point, the, the religious leaders said to each other, if this continues, everyone will believe in him. And then what will happen to our temple and our nation? And from that moment on, they plotted to kill him. And they carried it out. And they were threatened by him, and they put him to death. Falsely accused, illegally arrested, handed over to the Romans, and he died. And when Jesus died, hope died with him. When Jesus was put to death, the movement died with him. When Jesus died, not a single one of his followers was thinking, oh, just wait till Sunday. Nobody thought that. Nobody was thinking resurrection. After the crucifixion, there were no Jesus followers. It was game over. There, there was nothing to hold on to. There was no movement to keep alive. There was no message worth repeating because Jesus had said too much about himself, and now Jesus was dead. And in every single account that you read, every single one of the eyewitnesses you read, they all admit none of us thought he was coming back. None of us thought we would ever see him again. No one was expecting a resurrection. And on the day Jesus died, everybody unfollowed Jesus. On Saturday, there were no Jesus followers. There was just people who had given up hope. And here's why. It's not that they didn't appreciate what he taught. It's not that they didn't uh, love that he said a lot of memorable things. It's not that he didn't perform a lot of miracles. It's that when he died, he undermined everything that he had claimed about himself. He had claimed to be God in the flesh. You're not supposed to be able to kill God in the flesh. He had claimed that he was the Son of God. The Son of God isn't supposed to die. He had claimed that he was the Messiah. The Messiah isn't supposed to die. He had claimed that he is the resurrection and the life. You're not supposed to be able to kill the resurrection and the life. Jesus said he was going to start a movement and that not even death itself would be able to stop it. And then he died. And the movement died. And nobody was thinking resurrection. In fact, if Jesus couldn't stay alive to keep his own movement alive, then why would any of his followers risk their lives to keep a lie alive? Didn't make any sense. Nobody thought resurrection. And I can tell you, there was nobody outside of the tomb with fireworks on Sunday morning going, 10, 9, 8. Everyone had given up hope. But what if Jesus really did rise again? See, the resurrection of Jesus validates who Jesus is. The resurrection of Jesus actually validates the claims that he made about himself. Jesus was put to death on a Friday. And on Sunday morning, some women went to Jesus' tomb. And they were going there to anoint him with some spices and some oils. And this was something that you would do for someone who was dead. This is what you would do to honor someone to show respect to someone that you honored, you would anoint their body. And they, they arrived to a tomb where they very much believed that Jesus would be dead when they arrived. 
And instead, when they arrived, they were greeted by an empty tomb and a couple of angels. And I love what the angels said to them. This is recorded for us in Luke. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Like, ladies, why are you here? Why would you look for someone who's alive in a tomb? Why would you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And you got to imagine this, the excitement. I mean, I absolutely love this story. And it's recorded for us by all the eyewitnesses. And, and you, you just, the raw emotion in this. We saw him die. Is this even possible? How could this even be? And they quickly ran to tell the other disciples of Jesus. And there are so many parts of this story that if you were going to make it up, you would have written it differently. If you're going to make up a story and create a legend so that you can perpetuate the legend of Jesus, the, you would write in his followers as incredible people. And you'd write them in with incredible courage and incredible conviction. And, and you would talk about how they stood by their man. And yet in every eyewitness accounts, they were scared to death. They denied that they knew him. Uh, they, they ran away in fear of their own lives. In fact, if you were making up this story to perpetuate some type of a legend, you would never have entrusted the very first witnesses to be women. Because in the first century, women had no legal standing. This wouldn't have been believable coming from a woman because of the culture. But the reason it's written that way is because that is how it happened. In fact, the Apostle Paul would later write this, 20 years later, he would write this to a group of people in Corinth. He, he would say, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12, that's Jesus' 12 disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul, Paul is writing 20 years after Jesus, and he's writing to a group of people, and the message of Jesus is swirling around the Roman Empire. And Paul goes, look, you want to learn more about it? Go ask them. You know these people. 500 of them. Now, some of them have passed away, but many of them are still alive. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. He says, then he was seen by James, which is, again, this just kind of dropped in here, and it kind of can become white noise for us, but James is the brother of Jesus. And I, I've said this so many times before. Try to convince your brother that you're the son of God. It's not going to happen, right? It doesn't matter. And that was James. James did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. He grew up with the guy. And then something happened. Jesus appeared to James after he was dead. And when you see someone die and you see them buried... And then you have lunch with them a couple of days later. That'll change things for you. And suddenly James believed. James, the brother of Jesus, believed. And Paul says, later he was seen by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. If Jesus would have died and stayed dead, it would have been really difficult to believe that he is who he says he is. It would, have been, it would have been, okay, Jesus, you're a great guy, and you're a great teacher, and you taught some really good things, and you brought this message of good advice. But Jesus never proclaimed a message of good advice. He said, this is good news. This is about something that's happened. If he was just a good guy, he, he would just be another sort of self-proclaimed would-be Messiah in a long line making outlandish claims about himself that didn't really back, that he couldn't back up. 
But if Jesus rose from the dead, that, that, that means he really is God in the flesh. That means that God really came to us. That means the kingdom of heaven has really invaded the kingdom of earth. That means that the things that he claims about himself are absolutely true. And if he truly came to earth to reveal who God is, to show us what God is like, then you have to look specifically at this last week that Jesus spent here on earth. And here's the things that you notice about Jesus in his death and resurrection. This is the God who created the universe. This is the God who has shown power over nature. This is the God who has healed sicknesses and healed diseases. This is the God who has actually proven that he's raised other people from the dead. And so here's the question that I ask around this time of Easter. Why in the world would a God who has power over death allow himself to be put to death in the first place? Why is it that God, God in the flesh, coming to reveal God to us, has the power over nature, power over disease, power over death? Why would he submit to death to begin with? Why allow yourself to go through that in the first place? But here's what we know about how the kingdoms of this world operate. When they're threatened, they bring violence and death to those who are threatening them. And yet, we also know every kingdom, every earthly kingdom ends. It's inevitable. The one thing that every kingdom fights to hold on to is ultimately the one thing that every kingdom loses. And then this Jesus comes into our world, God in the flesh, and he does not say, if you measure up, you can get in. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, there's a new kingdom, and it does things differently. And it's not a kingdom that fights to survive because not even death itself can defeat it. In fact, John would record this for us. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Jesus turned the kingdoms of this world upside down by taking violence, and rather than responding to it, he absorbed it. Rather than returning it, he took everything, all the violence, all the hatred, all the darkness that this world could throw at him, and he absorbed it, and he turned it into forgiveness and light and love. See, sacrifice has always been something that people did to sort of appease the wrath of the gods. This is the sacrificial system that the first century lived in. If we perceive that whatever, is, whatever deity or whatever force out there is running things, if they're upset with me, I'm going to bring a sacrifice and hopefully appease them. That's the tool that human beings had always used to sort of appeal God's anger. Instead, God took that system and he used it to show us God's love. If your picture of God is anything but that, you got the wrong picture. Somewhere along the way, it got twisted. Whether it was through, a, a, through some kind of messaging that was misunderstood or maybe even through interactions that you had with other followers of Jesus. But I gotta tell you, if you wanna know what God looks like, he looks like Jesus. Moving in our direction, laying down his life on our behalf and overcoming death. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we tell the story over and over again every year. And not just every year, but every day. Here's why. For followers of Jesus, resurrection is an ongoing reality. See, since Jesus has the power over death, he also has the power to bring death to the things that are imprisoning you and imprisoning me. The things that are bringing death to us. He has the power to set us free. The sin and the guilt and the shame. The anxiety about, okay, God, where do I stand with you? Do I measure up, right? Am I, am I tall enough to, to, to make the ride? 
All of that is done away with. Jesus wants to bring resurrection to us when we feel trapped by the things of this world. And Peter and James and John and uh, Thomas and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Mary and Martha and James, Jesus' brother, every one of these guys and over 500 eyewitnesses, they would say this to us. Hey, this isn't something I read about in a book somewhere. This isn't something that I heard about through the rumor mill. I was there. I saw him die. I saw the empty tomb. I saw the scars in his hands, in his feet, in his side. I saw him die, and I saw him alive, and it changed everything for me. And Paul would later write this to followers of Jesus. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. That's why Easter matters. That's why Easter matters today. That's why Easter matters right now in this moment, in this room. It's why it matters whatever room you're watching in online. That's why Easter matters, and that's why it's going to matter tomorrow and the next day, because it validates who Jesus says that he is. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you get to live in the ongoing reality of resurrection. See, Jesus didn't come to bring good advice. That's, that's about all the things you need to do in order to get to God. This is about good news. This is all of the things that God did to get to us. And primarily, Jesus is, his primary concern with you and I is not that hopefully we can get to heaven someday. God wants heaven to get into you. That's what he's concerned with. He wants to make sure that, you're, that you can access it now and live as a, citizens of, a citizen of God's kingdom here and now and today. The question is whether or not we'll accept that invitation but you can experience resurrection in your life every single day. In fact, when you die to yourself and be resurrected to a life of serving others, you experience the resurrection of Jesus. You experience the resurrection of Jesus every time that you die to fear and you're resurrected to faith. Every time that you die to hostility and you're resurrected to love, that you die to anger and hatred and you're resurrected to forgiveness and love, when you die to a life of taking and you are resurrected to a life of giving, to, you die to a life of sin and you're resurrected to a life of freedom. And Paul actually says this. He says that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives in you. That's unbelievable. That means resurrection is an ongoing reality for every one of us. Because Easter is not simply the resurrection, the celebration of the resurrection of one man. It is the resurrection of anyone who chooses to put their trust in Jesus. And you and I are invited to actively participate in the ongoing reality of that resurrection. When we die to our old selves, when we rise to new life with Jesus. It's not about what we've done, it's about what God has done for us. And so I invite you to get rid of the anxiety. I invite you to get rid of the guilt and the shame. I invite you to get rid of anything that has been holding you back. And I invite you to stop pursuing God through a set of rules and rituals and trying to measure up through your behavior. And I invite you to embrace the invitation of God who says, I have come to bring new life to you. Remember, following Jesus is less about trying to please God and more about learning to trust him. It's not just going, okay, God, what are the things I need to do to try to please you? It's simply learning to trust what he's already done. This isn't about a transaction where we get something from God. This is about relationship where Jesus stepped into time and space, leaving the glory of heaven and showing up in flesh and blood in a sinless life that we never could. He, can, he comforts and he heals. He preaches and he teaches about the kingdom of God and what it's like, and he reveals the heart of the creator to us, and then he willfully lays down his life 
crucified on a cross and uh, as a sacrifice to put an end to the sacrificial system that was rooted in us behaving our way to God. He says, I'm going to use that very system to put an end to that system. He died and was buried, and three days later, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he was raised to life, that anyone, regardless of race or creed or background or whatever religion you grew up with or whatever shameful past you come from, that you could experience loving community with God. And some of you are here today, and some of you are watching online right now simply because you needed to hear that. This is not a message of good advice, and here's the things that you need to do to get to God. This is a message of good news. This is what God has done to get to you. And he invites you simply to trust him and to begin to live life as a citizen of his kingdom. That's why Easter matters. And so I want to invite you as we close if you've never said yes to that invitation, if you've never said yes to the invitation of God to say, you know what, I have a kingdom, but I'm going to surrender that to your kingdom. I, I, I want to operate in your kingdom. So God, I want to put my trust in you, and I want to follow you. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to just say yes as we agree with this prayer. For others of you, maybe you'd say this, I did that once, and then life kind of got in the way. And I realized I keep putting my kingdom first. But man, I really want to... Easter reminds me that I want to follow Jesus. I want to surrender to him. And so if you would pray that, just agree with this prayer, and let's pray together. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I know I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you never walk away from me. And thank you for sending Jesus into this world, God in the flesh, not fighting against, but laying down his life in sacrificial love for me. And so I just want to say yes to the invitation to be a part of your family, to live as a citizen of your kingdom, to put my trust in you and to follow your way as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, there are those of us who are doing our best to follow you each and every day, but sometimes we recognize we put our kingdom first. So as we remember the story of Easter every day, not just once a year, but every day. May we live the ongoing reality of resurrection. May, be, may we be resurrected from selfishness. And God, may we be uh, resurrected to a life of giving and generosity. May we be resurrected from living life for ourselves, resurrected to a life of living for others, serving others, following you. And God, as we do that, give us the wisdom to know that next step and give us the courage to take it. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.